chapter 3 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible, you should find one nearby you stuck in the back of a pew. Those are for you to use. And if you're not familiar with, uh, with the books of the Bible, there's an index at the front. The book of Ephesians is in the New Testament. This week and next week, we're going to be looking at the capstone prayer of the book of Ephesians. And I say it's the the capstone for a couple of reasons. Um, One is because if you read Ephesians straight through, Paul starts a prayer at the end of chapter 1 for the church in Ephesus and for us as a church in Seattle. He prays for us and then he kind of diverges and takes a detour, and for the most part, it seems that he feels the need to unpack and explain some of the things he's been praying for, and when we get here in chapter 3, verse 14, he, he prays again, but I would suggest to you maybe a better way to say it is that he resumes his prayer, and so you could understand the whole first half of Ephesians as being a prayer with a little bit of a preamble and some digressions. Okay. Second, it is the capstone of Ephesians because after we finish this prayer, chapter 4 begins with a big fat therefore, and everything that follows builds upon what has come before. There's a hinge in the book of Ephesians between the first three chapters and the, follow, uh, the, the final three chapters, and this prayer is right at the center of it. But it's also the center of the book theologically. In fact, if you were to just go through and count all of the words that Paul uses more in Ephesians than his other letters, Romans, 1 Corinthians, if you just looked for the words that seemed to signal what Paul was really talking about in Ephesians, you would find all of them clustered right in the center. This is where he takes all of the theological strings of the letter and ties them together. The reason I like this prayer, though, is because it's not just central to Ephesians. You could say that it is central to the big picture of what God is desiring to do in his people known as the church. In other words, it's not just a prayer. In some sense, it's the prayer. Now, just as an aside, one of uh, the helpful ways to think about the prayers that are recorded for us in the scripture is that they're valuable not just in their example, they give us language and a model to pray on our own, but also that they're prayers that show us distinctly and maybe even uniquely God's will in our life because they're not just prayers, they're the word of God. And so we're going to take these next two weeks and kind of reverse engineer this prayer and not so much say, how should we pray, although we should, but instead say, what is it that God desires to do according to the prayer that Paul prays. And I would suggest to you, of all the prayers in the Bible, this one may be the most big picture. This one really takes what it is that God desires, again, to do not just in your life, but in our collective community life here as a church, and articulate it. Okay, But this is easy to miss for two reasons. One, because Paul is verbose. And so, Everything he says here uses extensive 
superlative language. He heaps on the synonyms and the modifiers. And so it makes wading through this prayer something that you can't just rush through and comprehend. You have to slow and think about it. But the second reason is because uh, it's easy to miss the structure of this prayer. Okay, Paul is going to make here three requests. And as I read, you can spot them because they all begin with... um, Uh, Let me grab the exact word here. Um, They all begin with, rooted, grounded, love, with the word may. Okay? So he makes three requests. I pray this and this and this. But it's not a laundry list of prayers. It's not like a, a shopping list of God's blessings. So I pray that you would have this and that you would have this and that you would have this. It's progressive. I pray that you would have this in order that this would happen, so that finally this would happen, okay? In other words, it's got stairs or steps. It's got a progression to it. It's got both a foundation as well as a pinnacle, okay? And as we look at this today, again, I want to suggest to you that this is both an explanation of what it is that God desires to do in your life as an individual, in our life as a church, and how it is that God is going to do it, okay? And that's good news for us because we can lean into the promises and plans of God. We can assess and seek God's will for our life by entering into this process, pursuing these steps, okay? Now, let's go ahead and read it together We're going to read verses 14 through 19. You can follow along with me in your own Bible. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to express at the deepest core of our being this morning that we want what you want. We want to pray as Jesus taught us that your will would be done on earth, in us, as it is in heaven. And as we explore this prayer of Paul, I pray that you would illuminate both your plan for us and the way that the plan functions so that your will would be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, not to put too fine a point on it, but I I want to, in the words of Paul's language here, give you the basic outline of the prayer so you can see where we're going, and then we'll start at the beginning and walk our way through. And so notice first that his prayer begins in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Okay, so first and primarily and foundationally, Paul prays for strength that you would be strengthened with power. And as we will see, he talks about that strengthening and power using different metaphors, coming at it from different angles, but ultimately we'll see first 
I pray that you would be strengthened. And then second, verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend. Okay? So this isn't blank check strength. This isn't just, here is the power of God, do with it what you will. Right? This strength is for a purpose. It's for a reason. Okay? And what is it for? It's strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know, there it is again, strength to know the love of Christ. And then finally, why does he want you to know the love of Christ? So that, at the end of verse 19, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay? I pray that you would be strengthened so that you may better know Christ's love so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Okay. Now, I want you to notice two things. First, notice verse 14 begins with, for this reason. For this reason. Although we're beginning here, Paul didn't. This prayer is coming from somewhere. It's built upon something, right? And usually the best way to go, well, what reason? Or the best way to follow a therefore is to just look in the preceding verses. But this one is tricky. Because the first half of chapter 3, as we've been walking through the last few weeks, is a digression. In fact, notice that verse 1 of chapter 3 begins with the same three words. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then we have the digression, assuming that you've heard, right? And so he gets back and gathers up after his digression and goes, okay, where was I? Right, for this reason. But what does that mean? It means if we want to find the reason for Paul's prayer in chapter 3, we have to go all the way back to chapter 2. And so what was he just talking about at the end of chapter 2? Notice what it says in verse 19 of chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay? So again, what is the purpose at the end of chapter 2 here? God is building a temple. He's building you into a temple so that he may have a place to dwell by his spirit. Now, does that sound familiar to Paul's prayer? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God, right? There's a relationship between those two ideas. What is the purpose of the temple biblically? Well, if you go all the way back to the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, on the day of its dedication, they pray and they offer the sacrifices, and what happens? The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And later on, when David's son builds the temple with God's permission and sets up this temple, and he dedicates the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, and he prays, and what happens? And the temple was filled with the glory of God. Okay? It is the purpose of temples to be filled with God's presence. And so Paul says, God's purpose in your life is to make you a temple, and then he prays, so I pray that you would be filled with God's presence. Okay. And this is a major issue in the book of Ephesians. In fact, look at the end of chapter 1, verse 22. This is speaking of Jesus here, and it says that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay. 
And so what he's saying here, and again, the language here is something to be sat with. It's something to be meditated on. But basically, he says here that Jesus came to fill all things. How does he do that? By the building of a temple and that temple growing to consume all things so that he may fill it. Okay. Paul changes the metaphor in chapter 4, but he makes the same point. Just one more place, because again, this is so central to reading rightly the book of Ephesians. And so notice what he says here in verse 13. He's speaking of the church, and he says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, and notice this, to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. So Jesus fills, and we are his fullness. We are his temple, and he is the presence of God. We are his body, and he is the head. He fills the fullness, and we are the manifestation of that fullness, right? Again, this is not usual way we talk about things, but Paul's point here is is a simple one. He prays that you would be all the more what God has declared your destiny to be, the temple of God, the place where God dwells, the place where his praise, his glory, and his worship is present and evident, and most importantly, manifest, okay, visible. So this is why I suggest to you that Paul's prayer here is not just central to Ephesians, it's central to God's whole plan, God's whole purpose, What God is doing on this earth is effectively creating a place where his rule and his glory and his worship is visibly present. And unlike the Old Testament, where that was a tent with sacrifice and priests, or a temple in Jerusalem, now his body, us as body of believers, are that temple, are that place. Okay. So far, so good. Paul basically says, here is God's plan for your life, and I pray that it would be fulfilled. But notice, he doesn't just pray that, right? He prays preceding steps. So I pray that you would be filled with all the fullness of God, but he says, for that to happen, I have to begin further back. That's why I told you it's not just about the purpose, God's purpose for your life, but the plan. He doesn't just give us here the dream, I am going to build a temple. He gives us the blueprints. And then he walks us through it. So let's return to the beginning of the prayer again. And I want you to notice that Paul begins, as most prayers in the Bible do, with an address. Who is Paul praying to? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Sorry, I'm in chapter 1, or verse 1. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before who? The Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And why, why does Paul do that? Why doesn't he just say, I pray? Could we guess who Paul is praying to? Yes. Is this like the address on the outside of an envelope? And so if Paul doesn't address it correctly, it goes to the wrong God? No. But it's amazing how consistently the prayers recorded for us in the Bible begin with a description of the one they are praying to. And I would suggest to you that that is not for God, that is for you. It is to remind you who you pray to so that your faith would be bolstered and you can pray with confidence. And I'll just give you one example. You can look it up later. In Acts chapter 4, the church, the brand new church in Jerusalem, is coming under severe persecution. 
People are being imprisoned and threatened even with death. And so they have a prayer meeting and they open their prayer this way. Sovereign Lord who created the heavens and the earth. And then they say the powers that be stand against us. Give us boldness to stand up to them. Do you see how significant it is that they pray to the sovereign ruler of everything that he's made? Right? His authority trumps all the authorities that stand against the church. And so it's appropriate for us here to ask, what is it about this 